Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to have with us uh, our Congressman, uh, Congressman Rawls. And we are wanting you, Congressman, uh, since you've been on the program before, our Congresswoman, uh, uh, to bring us up to date on what's happening in Washington, D.C. Well, Don, it is always a delight to be with you. And um, I am in the district for a while because when there's a federal holiday, generally we will um, have district work periods. Though I have five committee meetings tomorrow. Um, So I think everybody's trying to get their work done before the Memorial Day weekend. Um, I will say that things have been very busy in Washington. As you know, we passed the American Rescue Plan, and that has um, made an enormous difference to the people of this country. It has gotten those vaccines out. So now we're at more than 50% vaccinated across the country. It has made sure that we have more testing. It has given money to hospitals and um, first responders. It's helped our state and local governments um, with so many of the expenses that have come up during the coronavirus and and lack of resources um, because certain revenue streams have dried up. It has helped us open our schools safely. Uh, It has helped so many of our students who have struggled during this time. And now we are moving on to um, infrastructure issues. And these issues are um, very important to North Carolina. We had the uh, Secretary Buttigieg and the second gentleman here a few weeks ago learning about our infrastructure needs and, you know, bridges, roads, broadband, water and sewer, and also seeing how much our great research institutions are doing to help with these things. They loved going to the engineering buildings at NC State and seeing uh, a simulation of having a a bridge uh, collapse, which was pretty great. And they saw how wonderful NC State is. And I've been doing a lot. I've gotten um, four amendments on to bills that have passed the House. I've now in the last week gotten two bipartisan bills through committee, including one um, to help Fort Bragg that I co-sponsored with Congressman Hudson. Um, we ha- have the Asian hate crimes law passed into law and um, obviously signed by the president. And that's so, so important. And it's very important in my district because we have a growing AAPI community in Wake County. Um, And so we're just running as fast as we can. Tomorrow I get to chair my first committee hearing and it will be on the Voting Rights Act, which as we know is front and center, um, particularly since the last election, but really has been important for um, ever since uh, the Shelby decision and more than happy to talk about that. So um, no time to catch our breath, but um, so much important work to do. Uh, the voting rights bill, What? Uh, let's talk about the changes that that would bring about if it passes as it's proposed, and, and what do you think the chances are that it might be amended in some way or another that uh, would result in something less than that, but still something that's satisfactory? Yeah, so there are two different voting rights issues that are going uh, going on, and they're going on simultaneously. So um, 
So there's HR1, which is the comprehensive um, House passed um, voting bill that has more access to voting. Many of the things that we have here in North Carolina, same day voter registration, um, mail-in voting. Um, it deals with um, with campaign finance issues. It deals with redistricting issues. Um, and so that passed the House. I, you know, clearly it's not going to pass the Senate in its current form because of the filibuster. But there is some work going on on the Senate side there to see where there can be some common ground. I wrote an op-ed about it um, and about particularly the provisions of the bill that make voting more convenient that we've seen here in North Carolina. You know, you know, because you've been around, that North Carolina had the longest voting period in the country with the most ways of voting. And um, it clearly didn't benefit the Democrats. If you look at what happened with the presidential race, the U.S. Senate race, all the judicial races, the Council of State races, when we make voting more convenient for people, people vote. And then, you know, it's up to either party to use the tools that they have at their disposal to get their people to the polls. So I wrote a, a nice um, op-ed about that. And, and uh, there have been some bipartisan op-eds about that. But that's on, that's on the Senate side. What we're hearing tomorrow is about um, rewriting part of the Voting Rights Act that requires pre-clearance of the Justice Department when there's been a history of racial discrimination. So the US Supreme Court um, struck down section five in a case called Shelby County. That was the case that opened things up for the redistricting that was done after the 2010 census um, that you know, where we've had all the cases that went up to the Supreme Court, and then we had a partisan gerrymandering and all the rest, and it opened um, things up for um, the monster voter suppression law that got struck down by the Fourth Circuit. And so what Congress is doing is looking at having a more narrowly tailored Voting Rights Act that can survive Supreme Court scrutiny. Um, we've had one hearing on that. North Carolina was front and center for that hearing. We had both Reverend Barber and our Lieutenant Governor testify during that hearing. Um, and that was a few weeks ago. And then tomorrow, we are having a hearing um, about all the different um, types of uh, changes to voting laws that have gone through since um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was struck down. And then um, what kind of more narrowly tailored um, provision we could put in that would survive court scrutiny. And so this is very exciting to me because North Carolina has always been at the forefront of these issues. Obviously, we had several counties that um, required pre-clearance until the Shelby decision. And so, and I've even done some of these cases as a private lawyer and then survived a few rounds of uh, redistricting. So it'll be a lot of fun tomorrow. Tune in. Um, you can watch it on C-SPAN at 10 a.m. Are more and more meetings now happening in person and on the floor or actually in the Capitol building than, say, two or three weeks ago? Um, yes. More of the meetings are um, – all of the meetings 
are accessible virtually. Um, and some of them are hybrid meetings. Um, as a matter of fact, we had a little um, hiccup on the, the meeting when my first bill went through in the Judiciary Committee because the Judiciary Committee is having hybrid meetings. Some people are there in person and some people are there remotely. And I was there remotely because I had two committee meetings that I was going back and forth to, and one was a remote one and one was the in-person one. Uh, but it turned out that we had some problems with the audio. So we ran as fast as we could to get physically to the, that judiciary committee meeting. Um, the rules committee, which I'm on, um, only has 13 members. And um, rumor has it that we're all vaccinated. So I believe that we're going to start meeting in person again um, when we come back in June. Um, the Science, Space, and Technology Committee has not yet had in-person meetings, um, but maybe we're all more tech savvy because we're on science, space, and technology. But I think we will start to uh, have those meetings in person um, when, when we come back. The idea is that after July, uh, after July 4th, um, there's going to be a complete reassessment of how, um, how the meetings are held. And the way it works on the floor is um, we vote in groups. So to keep um, from having too many people on the floor at the same time, and people can vote by proxy. Um, and, uh, but I would say the vast majority of people do not vote by proxy. They physically go to the floor and cast their vote. However, on the floor, we have to wear our masks because um, there are a hundred members of Congress who have not been willing to confirm or deny whether or not they've gotten the coronavirus vaccine. And until we have um, the vast majority of folks um, with the vaccine, we're all wearing our masks, not just for ourselves, but for the safety of the staff. So that's the way it's going. Um, and I've gone to two committee meetings in person, the one where my bill came up, and then we had um, a hearing in the Congressional Auditorium on the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. And we had three people over the age of 100 who came to that hearing. It was a very powerful hearing. And I certainly wanted to be there in person, you know, because they were there in person. So that's the state of things. Um, we'll give you an update in July. Uh, tell me uh, the issues and the concerns that the Rules Committee deals with. So the Rules Committee is, I just love being on that committee because it deals with every single bill that goes to the floor. So every bill comes to the Rules Committee. We have the sponsors of the bill or the committee chairs testify about it. We have an opportunity to add amendments. So any member of the Rules Committee can um, introduce an amendment. Like I said, I've gotten four amendments, all bipartisan, onto three separate bills. Uh, the apprenticeship bill, um, I also got... Um, did two amendments to the reauthorization of the violence against women. But the other thing that the committee does, in addition to have the hearing on the bill, is they create the rule for debate on the floor. And so sometimes the rule is that 
um, something's on the suspension calendar. And sometimes the rule is that it's a closed rule with no amendments. Sometimes the rule allows um, anybody who wants to do an amendment to do an amendment. But for each bill, we um, vote after the amendments are offered in, in the rules committee, we vote on what the rule will be for floor debate. And then that rule gets debated on the floor um, for an hour. Um, and there's an opportunity for debate on the floor. So it's a lot more elaborate than what you see in the North Carolina General Assembly, where, you know, bills go to the Rules Committee either to be handled or to be killed. Every bill that comes to us um, for the floor gets full consideration. I've been in 12-hour Rules Committee meetings. Um, but I love it because it means that I know what's happening. And it means that I'm representing my constituents. Um, and it means that I have an opportunity to introduce amendments to bills that didn't come through committees that I sit on. And um, that's a real privilege. And so I love being on that committee. And our chair, Jim McGovern, is a real gentleman, um, very um, thoughtful and um, allows for debate and has been doing a, a really wonderful job. Well, I'm, I'm glad for that uh, background because uh, that uh, committee certainly uh, would would be one of the most interesting ones to be on, as you said, because it keeps you fully informed. Our guest is uh, uh, Congress. Oh, I, I'm going to say representative, so I don't have to say Congresswoman uh, Rawls, who uh, has been with us a number of times. And we have one more segment, and we're going to talk about uh, other work that is going on in Washington that she is associated with. And we'll do that right after these messages. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking you questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers, and we welcome back Representative Ross, who's in her first term and serving uh, the uh, citizens of North Carolina. And we uh, have talked a little bit about the uh, some of the work that she's doing, but during the break, she said, the one I really want to talk about is my work on the science committee. So let's talk about that. What 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 gets you so charged up about that? 
Well, um, I asked to be on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee because I represent, you know, part of the research triangle. And we have so many wonderful institutions of higher education, of course, NC State University, and then Wake Tech, which um, has a brand new campus in the Research Triangle. If you have not been there, it is absolutely amazing. And the work that they're doing there is great. And then, of course, I represent two HBCUs, Shaw and St. Aug. And, um, and then I have William Peace University and Meredith in my district. Um, and then so much tech in this district. You know, we have SAS, we have Red Hat, we have Pendo, um, where Apple is coming. And um, it's so important that the person representing this area be very, very involved in what's going on with science, space, and technology and funding issues. And so I serve on two subcommittees of science, space, and technology, one of them is the research and tech subcommittee. Um, and that's where just um, last week we marked up the National Science Foundation's budget. And uh, that's so important for NC State and for other entities that get money from the National Science Foundation. I, I offered an amendment to that markup that would include money for community colleges um, because community colleges are doing um, a lot of good research and tech training. But what I want to really tell you about this committee is how bipartisan its work is. So we have only had one partisan vote in the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. We did a markup for the National Science Foundation with multiple amendments, all bipartisan. We had, we've had hearings on vaccine hesitancy, and the chair and the ranking member have brought in people who have talked about hesitancy in our minority communities, but also hesitancy in our rural communities. We just had a bipartisan hearing yesterday on cybersecurity. And we in North Carolina care tremendously about that because of what went on with the Colonial Pipeline. And one of the things that I shared with the committee today on, on the, when we talked, or yesterday when we talked about cybersecurity is the, all the work that's going on at NC State and Wake Tech, training people on how to deal with cybersecurity. I'm also on the energy subcommittee and, um, we, I've introduced a bill for offshore wind um, and have led a letter on offshore wind um, that is bipartisan. Again, I've done it with um, Congressman Rouser from Wilmington, which would be a great site for offshore wind. And that energy committee is looking at the energy infrastructure of the future. And North Carolina has been a leader in renewable energy ever since the renewable energy portfolio standards, but there's so much more we can do. And so it's just been exciting being on that committee because I feel like we're getting things done. Everybody is invested in the committee and everything that I do on the committee helps the institutions of higher education in my district and throughout North Carolina and really helps the research triangle area. And I've heard so much from the businesses, the education institutions, and even some of the museums, the Museum of Natural Sciences is thrilled that I'm on that committee. So um, it's something that just 
makes you feel good about what you're doing in Congress? Offshore wind is, is something that is, we've tossed around for a long time. How far are we away from actually seeing that become a real factor? Well, it's going to be a real factor. Um, now, I don't know if you know this, but the Trump administration had put a moratorium on offshore wind, which um, uh, the Biden administration is surely going to lift. Um, and that's what my legislation is about. And that is what this letter, this bipartisan letter is about. But the first um, leases have been given out and there's um, a an offshore wind project um, it, off of um, Martha's Vineyard that will be one of the first ones. And you know, that's even gonna benefit North Carolina because some of the components for that offshore wind are made in Huntersville, North Carolina. And one of the reasons why we think offshore wind is so important for North Carolina is because obviously we've got a lot of wind. That's why the Wright brothers came here, right? For, um, to, do, to make us first in flight. But we've also got research and technology and manufacturing here. And if offshore wind takes off, it could be a 140 billion dollar industry for North Carolina. And um, this is something that the governor's supporting, um, even the state senator from, um, from the Outer Banks, um, Republican state senator has been pushing this. It, it has been pretty bipartisan in what we've done. Um, and so I'm very, very hopeful that we'll see success with this first one. And then uh, it'll come down south. How, is, uh, how are the present suppliers of energy working uh, to get into this or to delay it? Uh, say like Duke Energy, are they an so, ally or are they trying to get involved? Duke Energy has been supportive. Um, I have talked to them about it. I think Duke Energy realizes that we are going to have to have multiple sources of power. And the key is that we have very strong sources of power. So I think what Duke Energy, and of course they can speak for themselves, what frustrates them is when it's a small generator that comes in and then it has to interconnect and then it's hard to figure out when it's gonna be able to provide power. But when you've got something as large as an offshore wind farm, that's a lot of power. And then you can be much more certain that it's going to be able to provide what's necessary. And then when the wind's not blowing, you have your backup power. So what I've seen with Duke Energy, and you know, I practice law in this area. They like it when it's a larger source. So when it's a larger solar farm so that they know they can get more power out of it and they only have to deal with one source of interconnection or a larger wind energy project. What they don't seem to like are these smaller ones um, that they don't find as reliable. So how does this fit in with solar energy? So um, wind energy and solar energy don't always produce power at the same time, right? Because solar energy produces power when the sun shines. Wind energy produces power when the wind's blowing and sometimes the sun's that's not when the sun shines and it can be in the middle of the night and it could be on a cold winter morning. And so the key is to have the energy when you need the energy. 
And then for these intermittent resources, that's what they call solar and wind because they don't happen all the time, to have something that's the, you know, the backup power. Um, and that could either come from battery storage or it could come from um, some of the traditional sources of power, either nuclear or um, some of the natural gas, smaller natural gas plants that are online that you would just flip that switch um, when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. So as a business or as a homeowner, uh, as we look down the road, will solar and, and or wind or the combination of both, along with more conventional means, mean that our energy bill will go up or down? Well, that's up to the Utilities Commission. So um, every time one of these projects gets approved and every time there's a contract for it, um, then, you know, the Utilities Commission um, is involved. The Utilities Commission issues what's called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity for these um these new, uh, these new resources. And so um, they assess everything. And then obviously when the utilities contract for it and want to set rates, the utilities have to have rate hearings and go before the utilities commission. So it's, um, we are a regulated monopoly system here in North Carolina. We are not like Texas. Um, where, you know, things come off and on and the prices go wildly up or wildly down. And so our utilities um, have to balance the resources. They do something called integrated resource planning, where they tell the Utilities Commission how they're going to use this utility mix and then um, that they'll have a what they call a reserve margin. So that if something isn't working, if the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing or it's a particularly cold spike for a long period of time, that they have the reserves that they need so that we can turn the lights off and on and turn the heat off and on. And we don't end up in a situation like they did in Texas. What we do know is that everybody agrees, and we're doing this on science, space, and technology as well, and they're doing it on energy and commerce, is we need a more sophisticated utility grid so that all of these different resources can come on and um, be regulated, you know, be used um, and that we don't have, nothing gets compromised. And we also have to protect that grid for, uh, from cyber hacks, as we've seen in different places. And let me tell you that Congress is taking this cybersecurity issue very, very seriously. We had experts testify about it, and um, I think you're going to see some action on it. Well, that, that should concern everyone because uh, it, I mean, it really can handicap us uh, beyond belief. Well, I can see why you get so excited about this work. And obviously, uh, your eyes are just shining. I'm watching you. We're doing this by Zoom, but I can see the enthusiasm that you have for this. And, and uh, so it's, it's good. And so the next time you're on, we'll, we'll probably want to get an update and find out exactly what's going on. We've got about uh, 40 seconds. So what's uh, you, you mentioned you had uh, two other committee meetings tomorrow. Very briefly, what are they? So um, we have a meeting with the Secretary of Energy, uh, Jennifer Granholm, in the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Um, the Rules Committee that we talked about before has very broad jurisdiction. And so we're taking on issues of hunger. 
And tomorrow, it's going to be issues of hunger among veterans. And um, you'd be surprised that particularly during the pandemic, we've seen even more of a food crisis among our veterans. So those are just some of the things that we're dealing with. And I'll be so glad to update you on them the next time we come home. Well, thank you very much. And I, I know you've got a, a conflict that you're going to, have to skip off. And we appreciate you taking time to share these thoughts with us. And we'll look forward to your next uh, time around. And, and uh, in the meantime, uh, keep up the good work. Well, thanks so much, Don. Have a great Memorial Day. We'll be back with more on Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. 